Well, tonight we are going to look in more detail at those verses and the ones before it. So if you would turn uh, with me to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to actually look at verses 16 to 26, uh, which to some of you will say, what a whole 10 verses, to which I say yes. Uh, And hopefully it won't take much longer than the three we looked at last week. Uh, But in Galatians 5, uh, it's page 1172 in the Green Bibles and 1812 in the larger print Bibles. And I'm going to read from verse 16 uh, down to the end of the chapter. You, my, uh, no. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is God's Word. And I've entitled this sermon, Keep in Step with the Spirit. And really we're going to focus uh, not from verse 16. We looked at 16 to 18 last week, but from verse 19 to the end. But it's important to read from verse 16 uh, to get that context of living by the Spirit. Uh, Now, a few weeks ago, uh, some of you will have watched uh, the coronation of King Charles III on television that took place in London. And one of the the most... um, uh, majestic aspects, if you like, of uh, the coronation uh, is the procession of the military as they walk, or rather as they march in step together through London. It's quite impressive, isn't it, that they can can do that with that many uh, people all walking in unison together uh, through the streets of London. They apparently practiced in the middle of the night. You can see pictures of them practicing. Uh, and on the day, uh, it looked mightily impressive, didn't it? As all of these soldiers uh, were marching together through the streets of London. There were more than 4,000 members of the army, uh, the RAF, the Royal Navy and Commonwealth forces uh, in immaculate dress uh, as they marched in those uniforms. There were 19 military bands who kept an exact tempo of 108 paces a minute 
as the Gold State coach rolled along Whitehall and the Mall for 1.4 miles. It was mightily impressive, wasn't it, to behold. And the soldiers, they, they march in their regiments to the beat of their drum. And an earpiece is worn by the bass drummer and it makes all of the bands start at exactly the right time at the command of the general who is in overall charge of all the 4,000 people marching. So the drummer has the earpiece, he's given the orders, and at exactly the same time, they beat the drum and the march begins. And if you had saw or heard any of the forces personnel being interviewed uh, afterwards, uh, you would have heard them say what a privilege it was to be involved in this piece of our history. And it looked amazing that all of those people at the same time marched to the beat of one drum beat. Different drums, but one beat. Now, the idea of a, of a regiment marching to the beat of a drum is exactly the idea behind the phrase, keep in step with the Spirit. That is exactly what it means. It's the kind of a metaphor of a soldier marching to the beat of a drum. In fact, the metaphor of a soldier in an army is a, a common one in the New Testament to describe Christians, isn't it? We fight for the King of Kings and we march to the beat of the Holy Spirit. And we are recognized not by a physical uniform, but by our way of life. A life that is marked by the fruit of the Holy Spirit whose beat we march to. You see? And as we saw last week, there is a conflict going on between the flesh and the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God, we saw last time, is our commanding officer. And like the soldiers said, what a privilege it was to march on Coronation Day, it is our privilege to march under the banner of Christ in a regiment who marches to the beat of the Holy Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. So that's the kind of overall picture you should have in mind as we look at this passage. We march to the beat of the Spirit. And in the verses we're looking at tonight, Paul goes into more detail about this conflict that's going on between the flesh and the Spirit and specifically the contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. As I said last week, throughout this, uh, these verses from 16 uh, down, and even from before, you see the words flesh and Spirit contrasted over and over. And tonight we see the contrast between the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And then he gives us our marching orders, if you like, which are to crucify the flesh and to cultivate the fruit. So there are the four parts we'll look at. The acts of the flesh, the fruits of the Spirit, we crucify the flesh, we cultivate the fruit. So Paul begins us then by showing the acts of the flesh. Uh, this is what a Christian does not look like. This is not 
our uniform. And Paul shows us in verse 19 how someone who lives for the flesh behaves. Someone who is dressed in the uniform of the flesh. And it's conduct unbecoming of a soldier of Christ. And Paul says that these acts are obvious, or rather they are obviously wrong. That's what he means here. They are obviously wrong. I mean, if you re- read this, uh, this vice list, uh, even to an unbeliever, most unbelievers would say, would say, yeah, this kind of stuff is not right. These are obviously wrong things for a soldier of Christ. Now, this vice list that we read here, it's not an exhaustive list. Uh, notice in verse 21, Paul says, and the like, meaning there are other acts of the flesh. And in fact, in the New Testament, there are about 10 lists of vices which speak of what life is like outside of God's kingdom. The sins that are mentioned uh, here are in some other lists, and other lists contain sins that are not here. This is not a comprehensive list, but an illustrative one. What the vices have in common, though, is that they are self-centered. The commonality with all of these vices is their egocentricity, the absence of a love for others. And so what we're going to do is to look at the meaning of these words, although we don't want to meditate too much on them. Uh, One writer says, there are certain vices, and a number of them are mentioned in this catalogue, which can scarcely be made the objects of intellectual contemplation without tainting in some degree the purity of the mind. Which is why you don't have many sermon series on the acts of the flesh, but you do have some on the fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) Nevertheless, it is important to consider these words and to see how we can fall into them and wrongly desire them. And I think they, uh, they kind of break down into four groups. That can be a helpful way of looking at them. Uh, and the first group of three are sins of immorality. Sins of immorality. So first of all, it begins with sexual immorality, which is any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. And so, sexual activity then that has no kind of boundaries. And we see in our society, don't we, the devastation of living that kind of life and what it leads to, Uh, how, how it objectifies other people rather than treats them as image bearers, how lives are ruined. Uh, Pornography would be included in this as well, by the way, sexual immorality. Uh, Then impurity uh, speaks of a kind of loose moral. Uh, but speaks also of the defilement that comes from sexual sin and the the separation that comes between us and God and and even us and others that results from sexual sin. And then debauchery, uh, that means to to sin recklessly in such a way as to not care what people think. And I think it is a kind of a a link to the sexual immorality and impurity because uh, it's kind of a, I, I don't care anymore, I'll live how I want in these areas. And I think um, an example of that in our our society today is the way that people kind of post uh, images of themselves that show off their kind of naked bodies or their 
their, their, their sexuality and flaunt it in such a way in, in music videos uh, and uh, po- online postings that are just blatantly sexual in nature. Um, I was going to say, you, you, you see that kind of thing all the time. Uh, hopefully you know what I mean. We shouldn't be watching those things, but they appear all the time, don't they? Um, even in adverts and things like that. That's kind of debauchery, uncaring, kind of, uh, we don't care what people think, we'll do it anyway. So, sins of immorality. The, the second group of vices, then, are sins of idolatry. Sins of idolatry. Uh, the first one of which uh, is, in verse 20, idolatry, worshipping uh, false gods. Uh, a modern example of that is how many people, I think, worship or uh, their, their phones or gadgets. Um, if you want a, a pun, you could call it like the Apple Idol, <laughs> something like that. Uh, even as, a, if you go to Birmingham, even as a temple, if you've ever been to the Apple shop there, it's got the pillars and everything, you can go and, and bow down to the, to the Apple. Um, uh, but people uh, worship uh, uh, technology and devices, don't they? Uh, if you think of the amount of time spent on them, what they're used for, uh, they, they can be good, of course, uh, but they also can be a form uh, of idolatry. Uh, idols is, is worshipping false gods. It's a, a big category, of course. Uh, then you look at witchcraft. Uh, in fact, um, I, I, I only found this out when I was studying this, but you, you, you get the English word uh, pharmacy from the Greek word here for witchcraft. So if any of you are a pharmacist, don't be offended, I'm not calling you a witch, but, or, or yeah, I suppose it wouldn't be a wizard, it's a witch, uh, but that's where we get the, the English word pharmacy from, and that's important because it can refer to spiritual darkness, but the meaning here has more to do with potions, enchantments, and such like. And so the modern-day example is, is, is like the drug scene. Uh, where people use drugs to get a high that is very much like what once was witchcraft. So those are kind of sins of idolatry. Uh, The third group of sins uh, are sins of animosity, the breakdown of of personal relationships. So you have their hatred, uh, which is being hostile to other people, refusing to love. Uh, Discord, speaks of, of constantly arguing with or, or moaning about people. Uh, in fact, um, if you go and search it on your own or with somebody else and don't talk to them so you can listen, uh, if you go to a coffee shop and just sit and listen to the conversations around you, do you notice how much moaning goes on? How people are always complaining about other people? Or you go to the school playground um, and my children are older now than the school playground, but as a governor, I see this all the time. People just moaning about the teachers, moaning about the school, moaning about other parents and other people's children, uh, sometimes their own. Um, just that's, that's what it's talking about here, like the d- discord. It's just arguing and moaning about other people all the time. Uh, then there's jealousy. That's wanting what other people have. It's a posture of ungratefulness for what you do have. It's, it's not recognizing or accepting that what we have is a, a gift from God. Um, you can you know, walk down the, the nicer areas of, of Pelsor and look at the houses and think, well, wish I had that house and all that kind of thing. Uh, jealousy. It's, it could also be translated as fanaticism or zeal, uh, an obsession then with material things, getting worked up about the unimportant in life, those all fall into this category. 
Uh, Then it says there, fits of rage. Uh, That kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? Uh, Uncontrolled anger. We see this commonly on the roads. Um, You know, uh, a lot of people kind of drive their car with one hand over the horn. Uh, That's kind of a, a fit of rage, isn't it? Sadly, though, we do see that a lot, don't we, in the workplace, again, in in homes, uh, on the sports field, in the stadium of the the football club or whatever it might be, fits of rage, um, screaming at the referee and um, that kind of thing. It's terrible sometimes in children's sports. I remember uh, my younger sister, um, she was really good at football. We took her one time and all the parents got in a massive proper punch-up. On the, all, the, all the girls playing were crying. All the parents were punching each other. Fits of rage. It's an ugly thing. Uh, and then selfish ambition. It means uh, a selfish devotion to your own interests. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have personal ambitions, of course. But it's when we want to get one over someone else and trample over them to get our way. Uh, then dissensions means causing division, uh, backbiting and bad-mouthing, destroying friendships. Factions, it's slightly different from dissensions. Rather than dividing, factions is kind of forming cliques, uh, groups that leave people out, uh, that kind of thing. And then envy. Now, envy is a bit different to jealousy. Uh, Jealousy is when I say, I want what you have. Envy is when I'm saying, I wish you would lose what you have because I don't think you deserve it. And I think I deserve better. Then the final group of sins, those last two, are sins of intemperance. Sins of intemperance. So uh, drunkenness is kind of self-explanatory. It's the abuse of alcohol and the lack of of control it brings. And then orgies, uh, that's linked actually to drunkenness. Um, Orgies here is is what we see on the the news perhaps, or if if you go out on a Friday or Saturday night in any of our big cities, big groups of people that are drunk, and causing uproar. That's the kind of thing uh, that is spoken of here as as orgies. So you see there a a vice list. And what you should be struck by, I think, as well, is that all of us as God's people, because we looked last week at how we have a battle with the flesh, are tempted with some of these areas, aren't we? They are included in the desires of the flesh mentioned in verse 16, that we are not to indulge. They are included uh, in the desires of the flesh in verse 16, that we're not to gratify, that we're to battle against. But they are not things that characterize the Christian life. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 21. Look there with me. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now hear me right here. Paul is not saying, if you have failed in one or more of these areas, uh, you are then kicked out of God's kingdom. That's not what he's saying. All of us have failed, myself included, in these areas. But what Paul is saying is that as a Christian, you will not live like this. This is not what will define your life. It is not a lifestyle that characterizes us. In the marching bands of the procession, 
there may be a misstep from time to time. I mean, if you think there's 4,000 people, there must have been somebody that kind of went the wrong way and then quickly got back into line. That must have happened from time to time. But they don't they go off in a different direction and keep going, do they? They, they? they get back into line. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't be part of that regiment, would they? In an orchestra or in a, a music a group like we have here, someone, and of course we've never noticed this, may hit a wrong note. But they don't start playing a completely different piece of music, otherwise they wouldn't be in that orchestra, would they? If they, they did, they'd be part of a different arrangement, not the one that is being played. And so likewise, a Christian may fail. They may miss that. They may hit a wrong note, but they repent of sin and get in line again with the Holy Spirit. Sinners are not then excluded. You know, if someone hits a wrong note in the music band, we don't just ban them from ever playing again. Likewise, when we sin... God doesn't just boot us out. It's not the sinner that is excluded, but here's the thing. It's the impenitent that are. It is the one that doesn't turn to Christ. It is the one that does just start walking off in a different direction or the one that does just keep playing a totally different tune. If you're doing that, you're showing you're not part of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? Now, perhaps for some of us here this evening, perhaps some have been failing regularly in these areas. Well, now is the time to confess your sin and repent. We did that as a congregation earlier, but as individuals, confess and repent. Keep in step with the Spirit. And in doing so, it is your repentance and your getting back in with the regiment that shows that you are part of God's kingdom. And for those who have not responded to the gospel, to those who have not confessed sin and have not turned to God, note here the warning Paul gives. And it's one he says he's given before. And it's one that we've given before from this pulpit a number of times. You will not inherit the kingdom of God you will be condemned to a lost eternity in hell if you do not repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. I, Paul says, and I, as a preacher of the gospel, also say and warn you, if you do not repent, you will be condemned. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that, is that clear? Well, the beginning of verse 22 begins with the word but, and we see here then a contrast. So he begins with the acts of the flesh, but he contrasts with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, fruitfulness uh, is a characteristic of God's people and is a common theme throughout the Bible. So in Isaiah chapter 5, Israel is described as a fruitful vineyard. In Psalm 1, the believer who delights in God's law is like a fruitful tree. Uh, Jesus uses the parable of the sower to show that the one that responds rightly to his word bears much fruit. 
And Paul uses the metaphor like of fruitfulness elsewhere for uh, converts for Christ and what a godly life looks like. And so here we see the production of fruit as a metaphor of the kind of life that we should see in a believer. Our uniform is one of fruit. And there are a number of things uh, to note about the fruit of the Spirit here. Uh, first of all, notice how the fruit of the Spirit is compared with the acts of the flesh. The fruit, not the act of the Spirit. Fruit is a natural outworking of the Spirit-filled life. And we can only produce fruit if there is a root. Does that make sense? Uh, you're not going to produce the fruit if you haven't got the root. The root is the Holy Spirit living in us. And the fruit is the natural outworking of the Spirit-filled person. These are not the works of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. They are not something that we can self-generate as much as they are characteristics. Now, they result in good works, but they are natural characteristics of God's people. So that's the first thing, the fruit of the Spirit, not the act of the Spirit. Uh, second, note how the word fruit is singular. So this is not the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit. So it is one fruit manifested in these nine graces. And that's important because it means that all of these characteristics grow together in the believer. We can't just say, well, I'm kind of interested in joy this week, so I'll forget about the others. They grow together. Maybe different sizes, but they grow together. Uh, thirdly, uh, compared to the acts of the flesh, these are outward-looking. Uh, they show a concern for others. If you remember, the vices in uh, the acts of the flesh were all self-centered, egocentric. These are outward-looking, others concerned. And then finally, uh, the, the fact that it is fruit means that they grow gradually over time and then it ripens. The ripening will ultimately, of course, be in heaven. And so we continue to grow until that time. So now let's look at these nine words then, the fruit of the Spirit. Unlike the acts of the flesh, it would be helpful to do a sermon series on the fruit and study each word. It is worthy of deep meditation. And it is my intention to do that sometime, but you can thank the Lord it's not tonight. Uh, and also, it won't be during this series in, in Galatians. I will do it at another time, though. Um, so we're going to just skim over kind of the words this evening just to see their meaning. Uh, so first of all, we have the word love. Uh, I don't think, uh, by the way, there's a particular order to this fruit of the Spirit, except to say that love is first because it kind of is, is a characteristic where all other kind of fruit flows from. Uh, in, in fact, you'll find love defined by some of these words in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, love is to give yourself for another person, for their good. It is exemplified, of course, in Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's love. Then there is joy. Uh, joy is, is more than happiness because it doesn't depend on our circumstances. 
except the circumstance of our standing with God being secure, no matter what happens. It is rooted in knowing God and experiencing his friendship. It is rooted in our hope that we know that glory is coming and that following Jesus is always worth it, even when it's hard. It is rooted in knowing that Jesus has conquered sin. He has conquered death. Christ is risen. It is rooted in knowing that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So even when he was suffering, it was still joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure, and so too with us. Uh, peace speaks of, uh, of wholeness or tranquility of mind, but it also speaks of restored and right relationships with God and others. Uh, we act as peacemakers even when we are sinned against. Uh, then there is forbearance, uh, sometimes translated as patience or long-suffering. Uh, th this is standing with someone even in the face of persecution, of provocation. Uh, it is to endure with someone even uh, when they are annoying and frustrating. Uh, it, is, it is to endure without anger and taking vengeance. It is a slowness to take offense. Uh, then there is kindness. Kindness means to treat others well and help them where possible. And then goodness slightly differently, speaks of being generous to others. Generous with our time, with our resources, with our prayers, and so on. Uh, then there is faithfulness. Uh, faithfulness is a continued trust in God. Uh, faithfulness is a loyalty to him and his people. It is to do what you say you will do, to, to see things through. Uh, then there is gentleness. Uh, gentleness is a a mildness in dealing with people. Now, it doesn't mean that you'll be walked all over, but it means that you're considerate of others. You willingly submit to them. It means a restraint on anger or power out of a consideration for the other person. A gentle person means, a gentle person rather, can, can go up to someone else and confront them with something that is wrong and make it feel like you're loving them. It makes, it, make, make, it makes a rebuke of someone feel like it's an act of love. That's being gentle. It's not going up and just, well, it might mean giving them a clip around the ear, but gent gently, <laughs> um, not a punch around the ear. Uh, and then finally, uh, self-control. Self-control is a, a mastery of our desires and passions. And it ends the list probably because without the control of self, the other virtues really wouldn't be displayed, would they? Because we'd end up in a kind of cycle of selfishness again. Now that was the whistle-stop tour, and one day, don't know when, there will be a sermon series on the fruits of the Spirit where we can delve very deep. But do you notice, as you look at this list, how these reflect the character of God? He has shown us amazing love. He is full of joy uh, within the Father, Son, and Spirit. He makes peace with us. He bears with us. He is kind and good and faithful and gentle. He is self-controlled in all he does. He doesn't just 
lash out or do something that he didn't mean to do. And so as God dwells in us, we begin to look more and more like him as we bear the fruit that is the likeness of the Son whom we abide in. You see, brother or sister, a transformed and holy life is not an optional extra for the Christian. The fruit shows you are a Christian. Do you see that? If you like, it is the uniform that we wear that distinguishes us from the world around us. It's what makes us look like Jesus. And at the end of verse 23, notice how Paul writes, Against such things there is no law. What this means is that if we're bearing this fruit in our lives, no law would ever condemn us. That's why you don't need the legalism that the Jewish false teachers were promoting. What you need is the Holy Spirit to live inside you. The law was never directed against people that are like this. These people, people that have the Holy Spirit in them that display the fruit of the Spirit, fulfill all that God desires because they are like God. You could read uh, at the end of that verse, against such people there is no law. You could look at it like that. Or there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that none of us here this evening, and I, I, I think I know you all, but even if I don't, this is still true, none of us here have arrived at perfection. The fruit is not completely ripe in any of us. And if you think it is, come speak to me afterwards, and I can gently show you it's not. <laughs> but the key is this, that however slow it may be, we are looking more and more like Jesus as we bear the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul has contrasted the acts of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, but now he moves on to show us how to respond to this contrast. And this uh, will be a bit quicker than the first two points. But um, the, the first thing he tells us to do is to crucify the flesh and then to cultivate the Spirit. So the third point this evening, a Christian then crucifies the flesh. Look again at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul is talking here of an ongoing action that the Christian undertakes. We continue to crucify the flesh. Uh, we're like a, a guard that watches the crucifixion and keeps the person on the cross, the person being our flesh. Now in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, speaking in the past tense. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul is speaking of his position in Christ, something that happened once. He has become a Christian. He's died to his old life. He has risen to a new life. That is something that has happened. This is different to Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. In chapter 2 verse 20, something has happened to Paul. He was crucified. Here is something we do. We crucify the flesh. We do the crucifying. Now, crucifixion 
uh, is something that's been toned down for us today because, and I'm not saying this is wrong, we, we, we wear crosses and sometimes we decorate crosses and they, they look beautiful. But to the Galatian readers of the Roman times, this was a shocking image to crucify. Crucifixion was a gruesome and horrific death. And we're told here to crucify the flesh, to put the flesh, that sinful part of us, to a gruesome and, and ruthless death. And it's talking about a ruthlessness with sin. It speaks of a completeness of its ending. It is a not holding back, but rather seriously nailing it to the cross. It's a seriousness about sin, you see? Now, Jesus tells us to take up our cross. John Stott says this, Paul takes the metaphor to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our stubborn and wayward self, and metaphorically speaking, nail it to the cross. Now, when someone was crucified, they expired slowly. And so sin dies slowly too, doesn't it? But here's the thing. We must not let it come down. We must keep it on the cross until it expires. But not only does Paul speak of specific deeds, he also mentions here its passions and desires. He speaks to our very hearts to take seriously not just the acts themselves, but the attitudes and the motives that drive our flesh. It is to put to death wrong ways of thinking and feeling. Let me ask you, brother or sister, how serious are you? How serious are you about taking the fight against sin? If you belong to Jesus, you must crucify the flesh. Take your sin seriously. And I would urge you tonight to consider this. What is it that you need to nail down? What are you struggling with in the battle against the flesh that you need to crucify? Because as John Owen rightly said, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But in verses 25 and 26, Paul speaks of the flip side. We are to crucify the flesh, but also a Christian cultivates the fruit. Look again at verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So here, like I said before, is an image of marching to the drumbeat of the Spirit. It's an orientating ourselves toward God in line with the new nature that he's given us. And we keep in step with the Spirit or cultivate the fruit by doing what I've said last week, by immersing ourselves in the means of grace that God has given us. So we nail the flesh to the cross, but while we're there, while it's being nailed to the cross, we immerse ourselves in our Bibles, in prayer, in the Lord's Supper, in worship together as God's people, helping one another, turning each other's eyes towards Christ. And then we do so again and again and again 
And as we do so, we are transformed through these means by the power of the Spirit into the people God has called us to be. Now, verse 26 can seem a little bit out of place in this passage. However, Paul is showing us that keeping in step with the Spirit ourselves impacts in a positive sense in the lives of others. Look at what he says. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. What he's saying is if we keep in step with the Spirit, this is something that we will do. Now in the church in Galatia, there were fights and there were arguments going on about the law, about circumcision and such things. But if we are in step with the Spirit, showing the fruit of the Spirit, we're not going to be conceited. Uh, To be conceited uh, is one of the few words in our modern Bibles that I think actually is better translated in the authorized version of the Bible, where it says the word vainglory, vainglory. It means to be seeking glory for yourself. Let us not be vainglorious. Let us not be self-seeking in glory. That's what he's saying. And if you are in step with the Spirit, the Spirit who shines the light on Jesus, if we're in step with that drumbeat, what is our life going to be like? It's going to be a spotlight that points others to Christ. And so in doing that, you won't provoke others except to love and good deeds, which Paul says in another place. You won't envy. You won't seek someone's downfall in the church, but rather you'll seek their good. In short, the people problems of the church are fixed as the people of the church keep in step with the Spirit. And again, if you look at the illustration of the the marching uh, Uh, soldiers at the coronation, another thing you didn't see was them having a a Barney next to each other. (laughs) They were just focused on following the beat of the drum. Now those armies at that coronation were an amazing spectacle to behold. But let me tell you this, they are nothing compared to the great congregation from every nation, tribe, people, and language, who will together, in one song and one beat, be worshipping the Savior who they will be like. And that's where we are headed. That is what keeps us going. That is what keeps us in step with the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, for the glory of God, for the eternal good of ourselves, And for one another, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's crucify the flesh. Let's cultivate the fruit. Let us, in doing so, point one another and our community to the Savior we all need. Well, our final song, as we close, uh, speaks of our love for Jesus. A love that the Spirit gives us. And when we love Jesus, we resign what this song calls the follies of sin. We resign them for something far better, a saviour and redeemer who leads us to heaven. Now, uh, this uh, tune is another curveball from the praise hymn book that I wasn't aware of. I don't even know this tune, but apparently uh, some of you probably will. So we're going to stand and give it a go. The song is, My Jesus, I love thee, Uh, I know thou art mine. 
So we'll stand and uh, sing this hymn, and uh, hopefully by the second verse, if you don't know the first verse, uh, you'll be able to follow along. Uh, Let me encourage you, keep in step with these guys. So let's stand uh, and let's sing together.
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Brothers and sisters, we can apply God's word to our lives because his spirit is in us. Praise God. Amen.